Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in British Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. Labels on a map. Surrey, Lower Norfolk, the Isle of Wight, Northumberland, Middlesex. Not a map of England, but of the British colonies of Virginia and Maryland, published in 1673. This is a map that proclaims empire, from the prominent royal arms to the ships riding at anchor out in what is labeled the North Sea. It is both a map of land and of water. Rivers open into the interior like great highways. The landscape is thick with English place names, but there are other layers, other presences and histories. Indigenous place names, towns and territories, not separate, but intermingled in a world made less strange by the mere act of naming. And at the top edge of the map, a block of text that describes what lies beyond the Appalachians, where... The rivers take their original issuing out into the West Sea. Christian Cote is professor of history at Towson University. In a biography of a map in motion, Augustine Herrmann's Chesapeake, he tells the story of the maker and his map. It was a map in motion along circuits of commerce and knowledge that carried it across an ocean and into the coffee houses and collections of a metropolitan imperial elite. The book is as striking and detailed as the map at its center. Carefully researched and beautifully illustrated, it illuminates and connects a series of complex worlds. Christian Cote joins me from Maryland. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. Great. Um, It's great to have you. Um, I want to begin where you begin, uh, and you begin the book uh, by recalling a visit to the library Uh, Pepys Library uh, at Magdalen College at Cambridge. Um, And we'll talk about how the the map ended up with Pepys and in his collection. But I wanted to start with how you ended up there. What drew you to that library and what had you standing uh, in front of that map on a brisk March day, as you describe it? Well, I was there um, for one particular reason, and that was to see the map itself. Um, it is one of the only five remaining copies of uh, the Airman map, or map that's called Virginia and Maryland, that is, as it is planted and inhabited, which was published in London in 1673. Um, the map, which was in, originally engraved by a London engraver by the name of William Faithhorn and printed in London, um, was originally drawn by Augustine Airman, um, who was in Maryland at the time in the 1660s and 1670s. Um, and the copy that is in the Pepys Library is the only one we know of the owner of, that is, the only one that we can trace that somebody bought. Um, and because Pepys' incredible diary, and because, perhaps more so, his decision to leave his library intact to Modlin College, um, we know that he owned a copy of this map, making him the only early modern person that we know that actually interacted with this map. And thus it was sort of instrumental for me to go see um, what he would have seen at the time in the 1670s when he likely bought the map from John Seller. Right. So uh, tell us about uh, the the maker. Uh, Pepys is a 
I suppose, a not a household name, but a household name among certain households. But Augustine Ehrman is is not someone I'd ever heard of before. So uh, tell us who he is. He's one of those great early modern Atlantic characters. Um, So he was born in Bohemia in probably 1621 or 1622. um, And his father was most likely, though it's almost impossible to confirm this, his father is most likely a Protestant minister um, who left Bohemia and the religious wars um, that came to that region and migrated to the Dutch Republic. Um, And it's not until 1644, when he's a man of about 20, that Augustine Herrmann appears um, in the historical record. And he appears as an agent for an Amsterdam trading company, um, Peter Gabray and Sons, um, as an agent in New Netherlands, the Dutch colony in what is now New York, um, arriving in New Amsterdam, the the city um, at the heart of that colony in 1644. Um, And his job there was to work as a fur trading agent. So he traded um, with Iroquoian people um, up the north or what becomes the Hudson River um, and exchanges furs, which he then uh, sort of repackages and sends back to Amsterdam for Gabrain Company. Almost immediately, though, Airmen, like most merchants who arrived as agents in this sort of burgeoning trading city, um, began to trade for himself um, as well as for others. So within about a decade, uh, Augustine Herrmann shows up in the records of the Plymouth Colony, uh, trading to New England. He shows up in the records of uh, Connecticut, trading um, in Connecticut as well, as well as along the South River, or what we now call the Delaware River, the Dutch settlements um, on uh, the Delaware River in what is today Delaware and in New Jersey on the other side of the river. Um, Airmen also showed up in the Caribbean, um, trading in both English and Dutch colonies as well, and in Virginia. So in about a decade, by the 1650s, he had become one of a group of merchants that was making New Amsterdam into um, an entrepot for much of North America. Um, He also, like many, wore a lot of different hats in this period. Um, Because of his language skills, uh, he also served as a diplomat. Um, We don't know how, but Airman spoke English and spoke it well enough to be hired by Petra Stuyvesant, who's the director general of New Netherland, um, to translate in negotiations, both in New England and then eventually in Maryland. Um, He's also a politician. He gets named as one of the nine men, which was a New Amsterdam advisory group that helped Stuyvesant um, run the city for the West India Company. Um, And the big break for Amron comes in 1659. It's in 1659 that he is sent, along with another man, um, to Maryland to negotiate about the southern border of New Netherland. Um, essentially, the, both the Dutch and the new colony of Maryland, which was about um, 30 years old by that period, both claimed what we now think of as the Delmarva Peninsula, right? the peninsula that has Delaware and Maryland um, as part of it between the Chesapeake Bay and the Delaware River. Um, and this is a region that both the Dutch claimed and Maryland claimed. So in 1659, they have this border conference in which Airmen goes as the Dutch representative to essentially tell Maryland um, to, to, to go away. Um, as you might imagine, the conference doesn't go very well. Both sides dig in their heels and both sides um, essentially say, you know, this is our territory. Um, to me, one of the most interesting things that happens at that conference is that there's this moment, I mean, we know about this moment because Airman writes about it in pretty detailed report to Stuyvesant, 
in which Calvert, uh, this is Philip Calvert, the secretary of the colony, um, and Airmen both produce maps of the region um, and argue of what those maps show. Essentially, they have competing maps that neither can convince the other of the, the validity of their claim. Um, after that, Airmen wrote to Stuyvesant and said, you know what, we need a better map of the region. And Stuyvesant essentially ignored him. So Airmen made the same offer to Lord Baltimore, who took him up on his offer. And in the process, Airmen became a major landowner um, in what is now Cecil County on the eastern shore um, of Maryland. And this is sort of the impetus to, to for Airmen to create this map. Um, he moved to Maryland in the 1660s. He began making the map. He played a very similar role in Maryland as he did in New Netherland. Um, he works as a merchant. Uh, he is a planter. Um, and he also works in diplomacy between the Dutch um, and Maryland as well. And he'll live out the rest of his life there um, with this map as this sort of really remarkable artifact of this, um, this Atlantic life. So he's he's the impetus then for him making the map is is this border dispute, but more more broadly, um, what map what role do maps play in seventeenth century empire? I mean, some of them are are produced uh, by the state, and other are others are produced by other people. So generally, what what is the link between mapping uh, an empire in this period? Yeah, I mean, I think we can. I think in some ways we can put them in put maps from the early modern period in two sort of big buckets. Um, one are, in particular when we think of maps of overseas trade, because because maps of, of local maps are sort of a different, different kind of thing. Um, but they play two distinct roles. Um, and often, and, and I think this is one of the problems and one of the efforts of the book is to, to draw these out, is that we conflate these things. So on the one hand, maps were apparatuses or tools of empire, right? They enabled European states to claim distant lands. And they did this both practically. That is, they were literally legal instruments um, that were legal documents that announced possession through the doctrines of discovery and inhabitation. That is, they showed that a imperial state had been somewhere, that they knew what it looked like, um, and that they had a presence on the ground. And a map could reflect those things and were thus used in negotiations between European states to claim ownership of regions. Now, that doesn't mean that states always listened to them, but they certainly were a tool that made that happen. Um, on another level, they were also symbolic for the creation of empire. That is, they enabled people to picture and imagine a distant place, and in many ways to normalize it, to take what might be fearsome and far away and unknown and render it in ways that looked familiar. And in that, in that regard, the format of the map really matters. The fact that these maps all conventionally look the same. They make this sort of tangled, complex, um, seasonal flows of water in the Chesapeake static and look like a river so that you can imagine making this part of your empire. And that worked for both um, royal officials and bureaucrats, but also for consumers, right? Because after all, empire is made not just by states, but by the broader culture as a place gets incorporated into the way you think about what it means to be British. Um, and in that way, maps help to normalize and regulate those things. On the other hand, maps were practical objects that were useful for navigation, right? That is, they were tools to help you get from place to place. 
Now, the problem we have when we think about, say, 17th century maps of the Americas, 17th century European maps of the Americas, is that very few of the navigational documents are left. What we have are those maps of empire, and we have them because they were saved in imperial archives or they were saved in collections like Peeps, whereas the maps that ship captains and navigators used are largely lost to us. And largely, many of those maps were manuscript maps. That is, they were never engraved and printed. They were rather drawn and copied. Now, we have some of those maps, um, particularly for um, Northern Europe, but we have relatively, um, in fact, almost none for North America. What's so amazing then about the Airman map is that the way that it was made um, is airmen worked on the ground in the way that ship captains and navigators worked. Um, and when that map was then produced um, or, or when it was then engraved, we can still recover the parts that airmen made. That is, all of the detail wasn't washed away, which often did happen to other maps. So this map then sort of captures both of those modes of map making, unlike, unlike most other maps of the empire. So to continue then with the sort of the, the, what the map does and, and the, the things that it draws together, you, you write uh, in the introduction uh, that the empire was produced at two scales simultaneously and Airman's map uh, captures both of these. Uh, could you sort of expand on this? Because this is this is really one of the most important sort of contributions that the map makes, the scales on which it operates. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I meant two sort of different things by talking about the scales of empire. So, um, on the one hand, um, the map captures... If we sort of think about the map at sort of the largest level, and and one of the things your, your listeners might want to do is, is just Google Augustine Airman, Virginia, and Maryland, and, and you'll be able to pull up a pretty high-resolution um, image of the map. Um, when you look at the map, you notice immediately that there are, and it is covered with symbols of possession, right? And these are things that we're, we're used to seeing on maps. Things like the coat of arms of Great Britain, things like the word Virginian Maryland. And as you began in your intro as well, these toponyms that renamed distant places in English terms. Um, all of these devices were used to literally sort of claim the land, right? To make it um, by, by putting Calvert seal, by putting the seal um, of the, the, the arms of Great Britain on Virginian Maryland. This is claiming this region as part of the empire, right? It's a map of possession. And that is one scale that empire was created on. It was created by states and empires that seized distant territories, right, and remade them as part of their own. But when you look closer at Virginia and Maryland, as you zoom in, and, and this could have been peeps peering more closely at his maps, or us today zooming in on a high-resolution image, one soon discovers that one of the unique things about this map is that it has this blizzard of information. And perhaps notable, most notable about this blizzard of information are all of the tools that would help one navigate through the Chesapeake. Um, these things are usually missing from maps of empire, but were on the kind of maps that were made by pilots and, um, and navigators. I mean, these are things like soundings, that is, depths 
of various waterways. There are little numbers all over every inlet on the map that tell you how deep the water is. There are also depictions of shoals and sands that show where are points of access and where one can't access the coastline. And looked on on this level, one sees all of the local imperial or the, the local action that it took to create an empire. That is, seizing a place, calling it Maryland, settling a colony, giving a patent for land didn't make a place real. What made a place real was the bringing of economic activity, the action of actors on the ground, airmen sailing through the waters of the Chesapeake, buying tobacco sending it back to New Netherlands. Those commercial exchanges were the things that made empire. So we have then in this map, these two scales, the scale of imperial planning and claiming, as well as the local action of empire. Um, and in most narratives of how empires are made, those two things exist, but they're often not put into conversation with one another. So what I try to do in this book is to use the map itself as a way of getting at the things that made the Chesapeake real, that local action and the imperial action. And the map becomes then the way at getting at that information. Um, and it's worth saying as well, there's also this idea of the reprocessing of colonial information that is imperialism itself um, that is an instrumental part of that story. So Airman's map, which the the, the, the manuscript, all the geographic information, travels to London, and in many ways captures all of that local information. But there it's reprocessed, just like tobacco is reprocessed, just like sugar was reprocessed. It's reprocessed into something else, and it's reprocessed into a metropolitan vision as these new things are overlaid on it. So it's that act of expropriation, I think, that's important as well. I just want to pick up on, on something that you said uh, just there, and, and the notion that the map uh, traveled. Um, we often look at maps and assume that there are snapshots in time, um, and they themselves are, are sort of somehow fixed, uh, but that's that's not what this, this book is about, and it's in the title. So talk about what you mean by the map in motion, and why do we need to approach it from this standpoint? I mean, what do we get when we, we put it back in motion? Yeah, so when I started this project, I had written an earlier book about Anglo-Dutch trade um, in the Atlantic and and the the action of people like airmen. And I sort of stumbled upon this map and, and I puzzled about what to do with it. That to me, um, you know, the more I looked at it, I began to realize that it captures the worldview of people um, like airmen. But as I thought, okay, so how do I then tell the story of this map? Um, I began to, to read a lot of cartographic history, and I also began to read a lot of um, art history and material culture study. And it became clear that I needed to treat this map um, not as a, as a written document, but rather as an object itself. And once I made that that leap, once I began to think about it um, as an object, it became clear that I had to tell the life history of that object, um, because objects are given meaning by the ways that, that we use them. Um, so as I thought about this map, I began to think about the data at its heart, um, how that data was collected, how airmen would have managed that and made it into a map, but then how that would have traveled across the Atlantic and been remade. So what traveled across the Atlantic was airmen's vision of the Chesapeake. 
once it arrived in London, it moved into the engraving shop of William Faithhorn, where that map was reinscribed in copper on a plate. And at that moment, lots of other features were added. Those are the sort of decorative features um, of the map, the coats of arms, um, the miniature portrait of Airman, which is almost surely a, an imagined likeness of Airman. Um, all of these things were added there, um, and the, that action changed the meaning of the map. Then the map was printed and sold, and once it was sold, it acquired new meanings. So we do know, while we don't have their copy anymore, we do know that the Lords of Trade, or right, the administrative body that is most responsible for managing um, Britain's overseas empire um, in the second half of the 17th century, owned a copy of the map. And we, we know that because um, there's, a, there's a record of them buying it um, in 1674. Um, they would have used the map and seen the map as a, as a tool of empire, right? As a way of how, we, how do we manage this burgeoning um, English empire and how do we deal with the complexity of the waterways um, of the Chesapeake, right? And sort of turning Airman's vision into an imperial object. But then somebody like Pepys, who likely bought the map from John Sellers' shop just outside of the Royal Exchange, right? The heart of um, City of London. This is the place where all of the information and financial information of the empire sort of comes and is reprocessed and consumed. Um, there, the object sort of changed meanings again, right? For Pepys, the map was about imagining what this empire was like. It was about the sharing of technical and scientific information about the empire and about the construction um, of the idea of a British empire. Um, Peeps also tended to buy maps and use them to ornament his house as well, right? So the map in that way could become a decorative object that enabled people to uh, simply have an aesthetic response to imagining um, what this empire is like. When you put all these things together, then, in order to really understand this object, we need to understand the context um, in which it was produced and the context in which it was consumed. And it's only by tracing that motion that we can really capture the story. Um, and that, in many ways, is the story of Atlantic empires as well, um, about the movement of people and of goods and ideas around um, this body of I've been talking to Christian Cote, the author of A Biography of a Babbin Motion, Augustine Ehrman's Chesapeake, published by New York University Press. And we will put uh, an image of the map uh, from the Library of Congress on the page that accompanies this podcast so people can look at it for themselves. Uh, Christian, I want to thank you for your time. It's a fantastic book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. <laughs>